0: Magnify the Lord to me and bless all his name. John Knox, the Scottish pastor, said, I've never once feared the devil, but I tremble every time I'm ascending the Lord. I feel that just a moment. That am excited here. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Philippians, chapter 3, and I should have had it. In case you weren't here last week, or you were here and you weren't listening, we've begun a series through the solos of the Reformation, October 31st, yesterday, marked its anniversary. And so to commemorate it, we've decided to spend some time dwelling on the, uh, the ideas from the scripture that were brought back because of the Reformation. Now, some of you are probably wondering why we're still talking about the Reformation. It's been more than 500 years. I think this year it was 504, three four two Surely the times have changed. Surely people have changed. And the world at large must have changed. So why even bring it up? We remember the Reformation every year for a couple of reasons. The first is because it's much more than just another historical event. We remember the Reformation because at its core, the Reformation was a revival. The Reformation focused largely on the work of Jesus and how His cross impacts our lives. The idea is that the Reformation declared Were that our problems, our sins are deeper than anything we can do within ourselves to fix them. People had begun to teach that if we prayed a certain way or visited certain places or gave certain amounts of money, then we could be spared the wrath of God. And the Reformation was a revival in part because it took the emphasis off of what we could do and placed it back on what Jesus has done for us. That's the focus of the Five Souls. We are saved by grace alone because nothing we could ever do could warrant what Jesus did for us in our place. We are saved through faith alone because no ability to keep the law could ever be enough for us to stand in the presence of a holy God. We are saved in Christ alone because there is no other way to the Father. There is no holy system by which we can attain heaven except through what Jesus has done for us. We are saved according to scripture alone because the Bible is the way that God has chosen to reveal himself to us. No amount of personal superstition, no time-honored traditions can change the ways that God has revealed himself to us, and nothing outside of Scripture can take its place. The Bible is our final rule of faith, and we are saved for the glory of God alone, because we were created with a purpose. That purpose is to know and worship God in his creation, and God's creation is never more perfect in this world than when it is in tune with the way that God has designed it. So we remember the Reformation because it stood as a revival that champions the answer to the question in the book of Acts. What must we do to be saved? The Reformation not only revived the scriptural teaching on salvation, but it reminded the church of our position before God as Christians. The priesthood of the individual believer had largely been lost by the time of the Reformation. People were teaching that we needed a particular group of priests to intercede for us before God. And in turn, that group of people was to teach us what God had said through his word. Uh, Imagine, if you will, that you have no Bible in your language. Imagine that you have never heard the Bible read in your language. To, as a matter of fact, to possess a copy of the Bible in your language is a capital offense. And in order to go to heaven, you have to keep the people in charge, happy, in order to appease God. That's why the Reformation is important. The reason for the, I guess, the restriction of scripture is that the Bible had largely been restricted to Latin before the Reformation. Latin was a language reserved for academic and church workers. Even by the 1500s, it was considered a dead language. But many of the early reformers were executed at the time for translating the Bible into the language of the people. If you have an English Bible, you recognize that people died to get that Bible into your language. William Tyndale and men like him were executed for translating the Bible into English. Uh, What would become the King James Version of the Bible was largely built on Tyndale's work. The grassroots of the Reformation in Europe was built on the foundation of Martin Luther translating the Bible into German, uh, which he had to do in hiding from the Catholic Church in Germany. And time would fail to tell countless others who gave their lives in the service of God during the Reformation. There's nothing special about those people. They were sinners and saints in the service of the Holy God, and because of that, the Word of God was preached powerfully and multiplied. But anyway, the idea that because of Jesus, we could go before God without priests stuck with the people. No longer were the priests the only ones who glorified God in their work. That people learned that every believer's place was to glorify God and everything that they did, and that they could serve and honor God as ably as the priest who relieved the Mass. God, it, it, these two ideas, our justification and our priesthood, are the linchpins of the Reformation. It's why the Reformation is important, it's why it's relevant, and it is why the Reformation is not going to So, because of that, we pick up the day with the second of the five solos, Sola Fide saved through faith alone. Look with me in the Bibles of Philippians 3. Here at Red Cross we stand for the reading of the word. Please, if you Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evil doers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put their confidence in the flesh though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin a Hebrew of Hebrews as to the law a Pharisee as to zeal a persecutor of the church as to righteousness under the law and blame us. but whatever gain I had I counted as laws for the sake of Christ the dead. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day that you've given us, for, for the opportunity to hear your word and to worship in your house. Give us ears to hear, give us eyes to see. In your name I pray. Amen. I may not dare for this morning, if you don't get a walk away with anything else, the concept that I want you to remember above everything else is this. People who are saved through faith alone and rejoice verses 1 through 11 of Philippians give us Paul's testimony as part of uh, one of several accounts in the New Testament uh, here he begins to describe to the Philippian church his conversion not just from darkness to light but it from an attempt to make himself righteous to resting in the work of Jesus uh, while he doesn't bring up the Damascus road experience the change that he has in mind here in Philippians is the one that took place when he came face to face with Christ. I'm not sure the reasons you have for being here as well. Many of us are tired of the daily battles we've encountered with sin. Many of us are tired of the division and disunity that we see in our communities and in our country. And many of us are tired of being asked whether or not we registered to vote. And I'm sure that many of you have come to worship. To carry your burdens to God and to rest. So, if that's you, this message is for you. So far in the book of Philippians, Paul has written to describe several reasons that we can rejoice. In both chapters 1 and 2, he outlines those reasons. And both of them, they come back they and rest in who God is and what he has done through the cross of Christ. Paul uses his own testimony here to describe the faith that saves. And he gives us two reasons that saving faith causes rejoicing in our lives. The first reason he gives from verses one to six is this. Saving faith frees us from the toil of the law. Paul knew the danger of trusting in ourselves for salvation. That was the life that he had lived before Jesus. He he knew that the shine, the temptation to justify ourselves through measures that we could control was was a constant threat to every Christian. And that idea is no different today. If we're drawn to doing spiritual things for people around us that we can tally up at the end of the day to measure our righteousness. We are careful to go to spiritual places, we talk about spiritual things, we're careful of the spiritual people that we hang around, and so many of the other seemingly good things that, if we're not careful, we can take the place of trusting Christ for our salvation. No doubt Paul knew the warning given in the Gospels about washing the outside of a cup and leaving the inside filthy. In Matthew 19, we have the story of Jesus and the rich young ruler. The, the rich young ruler was a, a man who had kept the second table of the law perfectly. He comes to Jesus and he asks, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus goes through the second table of the Ten Commandments. Have you, have you cheated? Have you done all these things? He goes through the last six commandments. And the rich ruler had kept the last six perfectly. He had kept them blamelessly. But we're warned by Jesus in that passage. That the ruler's transgression was that he had not kept the first four commandments that bound his heart to God. So here Paul uses his own testimony to warn the Philippian church and us about the dangers of keeping the law in our own power. He calls the church to rejoice because the faith that saves sets us free. And he breaks those warnings down into two categories there, verse 26. First, he warns us against trying to keep the law because of our own personal identities. And secondly, he warns us against keeping the law because of our own personal achievements. Uh, before he describes his own testimony, though, he compares the true people of God to the people who have been trying to take hold of Christ, while still keeping the law on their own account. He, he describes those false teachers as dogs, as evil doers, and as those who mutilate the flesh. He takes those religious people and he compares them to the true people of God. He, he, he says here in uh, his verse... Two. There's two and three there. They didn't write the (laughs) first reference. He takes those religious people, he compares them to the true circumcision, to those who follow Jesus. And he says that those true people, those true spiritual children of God, worship by the Spirit, they glory in Christ, and they put no confidence in the flesh. The comparisons that he draws in those short two verses are worth preaching a whole sermon by themselves. And I'm not going to do that. You're welcome. But long story short, uh, dogs was a common Jewish slander to refer to Gentiles who ate what they wanted to without regard for the the dietary laws that God had given the people of Israel. And Paul takes that word and he turns it back on the Israelites. He he looks at people who are trusting in the things that they ate and drank and didn't eat and drink and took that as the end of their worship. He compares those dogs to the true people of God who worship by the Spirit of God. You'll remember in John 4 about the woman at the well. Jesus famously told her that the hour is coming and is now here, when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. The true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. He similarly uses evildoers and those who mutilate the flesh to describe people who are taking the law meant to show us our simple hearts and making it just about our outward actions. So having drawn that comparison, he steps right into his own list of qualifications for trusting in his self-righteousness. Those two warnings spread out over seven of those qualifications given over the next three verses. First, he warns us that saving faith frees us from trusting our personal identities. Even trusting the things that we've done to make God happy, Paul knows that we are tempted to to pursue our own self-righteousness through who we are. Paul was circumcised on the eighth day. This points to the fact that he was born a Jew and from birth had been raised in the law. He had not been saved according to the law later in life, brought into the people of Israel. He had been born into it and from birth had adhered to the law's commands. Uh, likewise, he was of the people of Israel. Uh, not only had he been born an Israelite, but his family before him had as well. Not only was he the people of Israel, but he had come from the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, despite the tribe of Benjamin's many problems, it was viewed by many of the Israelites as the Hebrewist of the Hebrew tribes. Uh, the, the first king of Israel was a Benjamin. Saul, before whom Paul was named, uh, was of the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, those ideas lead to his summary statement immediately after a Hebrew of the Hebrews. So he warns us about trusting our personal identity to be satisfy the law. I, I only know a small handful of Messianic Jews, but Messianic Jews are people who are Ethnically Jewish but believe in Jesus as the Messiah, but I do know a lot of people who are raised in church People who may have forgotten what it's like to be a new Christian People who have long since stopped asking questions about the Bible out loud because they think they should know it by now People who are tempted to ignore accountability and fellowship because they believe themselves to be above the needs that plague the newer Christians in their lives that Paul warned us about trusting our personal identities to save us. Having warned against personal identities that make us self-righteous, he moves on to warn about personal achievements that prevent us from trusting Christ. Not only was Paul born a Hebrew of the Hebrews, but before Christ he had built a life for himself that declared his self-righteousness and perfection towards the law to everyone around him. Paul believed that no one had been more able to trust in their own achievements than he had been. <laughs> concerning the law, he had been a Pharisee. Uh, This was a particularly legalistic group of Jews within the nation of Israel. Uh, They were formed between the the Old and New Testaments, between Malachi and Matthew. Uh, They they believed that if a person kept the law of God perfectly for a single day, it would trigger the return of the Messiah. Paul was a member of that group by choice. His status in the nation of Israel was not questioned. He built on that status with his own zeal for his own self-righteousness. That zeal was public, it was well-known, and it manifested itself in the crowning achievement of persecuting the church in the name of defending God's honor. Here we, we see though, that feverish zeal often stands as a hallmark of someone trying to save themselves. Constantly worrying, constantly fidgeting, constantly trying to ensure that the community built they've been so busy building doesn't fall apart around them. But true faith often reveals itself in someone's ability to rest after the work is done. And lastly, it against trusting our own achievements by stating the crowning glory of this self-righteousness is is blamelessness under the law of Israel. These two warnings against personal identity and personal achievement uh, serve as sobering reminders for all of us. Uh, you don't have to be a Christian long before you see someone walk away from the faith. they uh, are tired of lying to the people around them Tired of trying to justify themselves to their own conscience and to God, they decided that the sinful lifestyles of the world are easier to uphold than the self righteousness that they've been trusting to save Many here could testify of people that they have served alongside of and look up to who have walked away from the faith just like that. So often the reasons for leaving sound almost prevail, like the warnings that Paul gives in these first six verses. And you can't help but wonder why. He can't help but wonder what went wrong. He can't help but wonder uh, sometimes if you'll be the next one. Uh, We know their names. We remember their faces. We remember serving alongside some of them, hearing them preach. We remember the power with which they disciple others. And I can give a pastorally sensitive, theologically informed, biblical answer for why people walk away. But that doesn't make the pain go away, does it? Paul's warning about trusting our identities and achievements are sober. But people who are saved by faith alone can rejoice because faith frees us from the work of the law. Remember, rejoicing in the work of Christ frees us from false teachers in ways that nothing else can. First, we saw that saving faith frees us from the toil of the law. And secondly, in the rest of the paragraph there, from verses 7 to 11, we see that saving faith frees us to trust in the work of Jesus. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Paul said over the next few verses like a counting sheet. He he had gain on one side, losses on the other, and he's basically checking his income, so to speak. On the one side, he had all of the things that he had done to try to gain God's favor. He had everything, everything that he was, everything that he had become from birth until then. And on the other side, he had Christ. Under the losses, he had lost everything. He had lost the status he was born with. He had lost the positions because he had earned since, and he took those things as lost, and he took them in stride, because in losing them, he found the work of Jesus. Saving faith frees us to trust in that work. We've been walking through the book of Joshua. Some of you have been with us on Wednesday nights. We've been walking through the book of Joshua for the last little while, uh, and looking at just verse by verse, chapter by chapter, like usual. Uh, one of the things that continues to come up in the early chapters is a sort of a symbolic spiritual recreation of God's world as he gives the land to his people. There's a cycle of covenant creation, of creation and fall and redemption that flows through the early part of the book. And one of the parallels we see in Joshua that is repeated again in the New Testament is of being found in God and how that works out. What does it mean to be found in Christ? What does it mean to be found in him? When we look at the law that God gave his people and the covenant promises that, that are found there, we recognize in the law that God promised blessings for keeping it and curses for breaking it. But even as the Israelites broke God's law and were chastised for it, they never endured the brunt of God's wrath. But like the land that was promised for their faithfulness it was never fully realized, and the land itself served as a future symbol of what God was planning to do. The New Testament teaches that because of the way that God has fulfilled the law, because of the way Jesus fulfilled the law in His earthly ministry, and because of the price that Christ paid with His death in our place, He has taken on both the blessings and the curses of the covenant God had made with His people. We are free to come to Jesus with our sins, with our shame, with our secrets, because no sin of ours will ever charge the price paid at Calvary. And even as we carry those things to Him, we are free to rest and to rejoice. So... The Bible teaches us that our trust in Jesus' work manifests itself as two rewards in, in verse 7. So he gives warnings in, in the first half, and then he counters that with two rewards in the second. God's people abandon their trust. They abandon everything else for the sake of gaining Christ. And the first reward we see is that we were with Jesus' righteousness to cover us. And the second is Jesus' power to resurrect us. And in verse 9, Paul looks back there the life he had lived trying to justify himself and summarizes pretty quickly uh, the gain that he received for abandoning his own work uh, he says uh, there in verse 9 uh, and being found in him having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law uh, that, that was the first That was the first six verses that was his whole life before Christ not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith Uh, Paul had summarized pretty quickly the gain he received for abandoning his own works and because he had left behind his own works of self-righteousness he received the righteousness of Jesus that righteousness that Paul was trusting wasn't due to the feebleness of his own works but to the finished work of Christ this is why it's often said that our assurance has less to do with our perseverance and more to do with the preservation that comes from the Savior before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. The great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. Behold him there, the risen Lamb. My perfect, spotless righteousness. The great, unchangeable I am. The King of glory and of grace. One with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high. With Christ, my Savior, and my God. We are covered by the righteousness of Jesus. Secondly, not only are we free to trust in Jesus' righteousness, uh, but we are free to trust in his power to resurrect us. Uh, Verse 10 lists the second blessing, uh, the second reward for our faith as knowing Christ. I've... There have much of one for life verses. I'll find one that sticks for a few weeks, and then one week I'm reading elsewhere, and suddenly I have a new life verse. Now, that doesn't look good for what some folks judge a mature, a mature Christian to be. Uh, but that said, if I was to have one after this week's study, it would be verses 10 and 11 of chapter 3 there. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection The dead having looked backwards to the life he left behind paul looks forward to what the future brings the second reward of trust in christ is simply knowing christ the chief reward of the christian life is to know jesus and to know him better the reformation idea of always reforming comes from that the christian's life is to be conformed to the image of christ according to scripture Having done so, the Christian is to continue to do so for as long as they live. When we see the power of Christ's resurrection in this passage, immediately we want to jump to the end of verse 11 and the resurrection of the dead on the last day. But the power spoken of beginning in verse 10 shows itself long before that. Here in Colossians 3, especially, I think I talked to Trey about it earlier. I almost preached Colossians 3 for this message. But in Colossians 3, Paul reminds the church. You have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you will also appear with Him in glory. We're often quick to jump to Christ's work covering all of the bad works that we've done, but we forget that the best we have done, or will ever do, will require the Spirit of God at work in our lives, and it will need to be redeemed by the blood of Christ. Our best works are tainted with sin. Uh, Jeremiah Burroughs when speaking on the assurance of his salvation said that I have taken all of my bad deeds and I have put them in a heap and I have taken also all of my good deeds and put them in a heap and I have left the heap to follow Jesus. We have been saved but none of us are perfect. And until we see Jesus we will continue to need the power of God at work in our lives sanctifying and redeeming us. There's no question as to whether we will encounter trials in the world. The only question is when we will encounter them and where. Paul recognized that, and so he couples the power of Jesus' resurrection with the fellowship of his suffering. If Jesus suffered, so will we. If Jesus endured the resurrection power, then so will be. The Bible teaches us that truth repeatedly over the course of several chapters in 2 Corinthians. And it capstones in 2 Corinthians 4. We have this treasure. Speaking of the Spirit. We have this treasure in jars of clay, to show that surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Listen, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Life in Christ comes from the death of our own sin and from the crucifixion of our own wills to the will of Christ. We come to Jesus freely and humbly and being found in Christ, we are raised with him. That's why traditionally when we baptize someone we use the statement, buried with him in the likeness of his death and raised to walk in newness of life. These truths of the Christian life, these. Rewards of saving faith look upside down according to world's standards. Our gain looks like we're losing a lot. we proclaim and confess to be the progress of our lives looks like nothing but falling backwards. We've taken all of our achievements, we've taken everything that we've ever accomplished, and we've said that they don't do anything for us before God. To the world, that looks like losing. And secondly, we confess that true living, the real life, looks like dying. According to the world standard, we've set aside everything that makes us good citizens and good neighbors and ultimately good people, and we've replaced it with something outside of ourselves. But the world does not understand God's accounting. I've told the famous story of David McMillan, I think actually about a year ago now, preaching to the Psalms. Uh, David McMillan was a pastor in Scotland for many years. Uh, He told the story once of, of moving from one pastor to another with his family, and when they arrived to unpack, they found that the pastor's study that was built in the home was up several flights of stairs from the from the ground floor there. He began the long task of moving his library up from up that long set of stairs, and before long his young son came along wanting to help. He gave him a small stack of journals and magazines to help carry, before he went back to the work of hauling the massive boxes and organizing his new study. It wasn't long before he heard his son crying downstairs, and when he went down to see what was wrong, he found him sitting about a quarter of the way up the stairs, sobbing. He had gotten a little adventurous and put some of the heavier concordances in his father's library in his little stack, and as he started up the steps, he had tripped, fallen under the weight, and well before he reached the top, he bruised his pride even more than he had bruised his knees. Uh, MacMillan reached down, scooped up his son, bundle and all and carried them both safely to their destination. I don't know where exactly you stand this morning with Christ, but the application for everyone is the same from this passage. We know Christ, we've gained Christ, who shared his suffering becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible we may attain the resurrection from the dead. The application for everyone is the same. Salvation by faith alone means that we are called to abandon our own works We are called to place our faith in the redeeming work of Jesus, who is able to carry us all safely home. Would you pray with me? Father, I know of no better words to pray at the close of the Sermon on Faith along than the words of Paul. So for this reason, I bow the knee before the Father, from whom every family on heaven and earth is named, that according to the riches of your glory, you may grant us to be strengthened with power, through your spirit, and our inner being, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, and that we, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints, who is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power of work within us, to him be glory in the church, and in Christ Jesus, through all generations, forever and ever. In the precious name I pray.